Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. This morning we're going to be reading out of 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, and also the end of Ephesians 5, uh, the last verse, uh, 33. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who declares to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. In Ephesians 5.33, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. You may take a seat. We are concluding a series that we have looked at uh, in this last part of the Ephesians 5 on marriage today, and what I want to talk to you uh, this morning about is um, the language that Paul uses in that chapter when he quotes the book of Genesis, and he says that in a marriage, two people will become one flesh. That is, in marriage, uh, one of the experiences that you are meant to have, one of the things that's meant to uh, become true in your relationship is that uh, intimacy is meant to grow to the point that you are, are just one with somebody. David Brooks, uh, New York Times columnist, has a great opinion piece on marriage where he says, uh, one of the joys of growing old with somebody is getting to the point where you look at them and you say, love you, I am you. That it's, it's not as though you're, you're two people just participating in something, it's that my care for you is almost a care for myself. And what he goes on to say in the piece is he says, look, oneness, intimacy is not something that's immediately given in a marriage. It's something that is achieved. 
It's something that's pursued. Now, that is an amazing, profound question for those of us who are open to marriage and looking into marriage, or those of us who are, who are married. Because if you're open and looking into marriage, you know, one of the questions you ask all the time is, how will I know if I want to be with this person for the rest of my life? And what Brooks tries to say to us is, you can't. That's something that is achieved. It's something that's developed. It's something that's cultivated. And for us, those of us who are married, do you have that? Do you experience that? Because what what Paul wants to give us is a picture of marriage where we all sort of grow old with somebody and more and more get to the point where we're one and it's not just I love you, it's I am you. How will you do that? Let's learn three things that I think will begin to help us more and more uh, be open to intimacy and oneness. Those of us who are married learn how to cultivate it better. One, you have to to, uh, see the voice for the thief. Two, learn language of the heart. And three, have eyes for beauty. Three things this morning. A voice for the thief, language for the heart, and eyes for the beauty. First, a voice for the thief. Now, I realize this reading this, this text we read uh, has to be like the strangest passage you've ever heard uh, when we're talking about marriage. But I promise you, what, 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 what we're given here is so profound and so rich that I, I can't help but thinking about marriage at times when I read this text. Here's what's happening in 1 Samuel 16. Uh, the nation of Israel has finally gotten a king, Saul, but he's a disaster and only lives for himself. So God rejects him. And then he sends Samuel and says, I'm going to find a new king. And what it says in verse 1 is that as he sends Samuel to go look for a king, it says, I have provided myself a king. Literally in the Hebrew, that word provided for means to see. And I think in the NIV, uh, it just says this, God says, I have seen for myself a king. So Samuel obeys this command and goes to find a king, and he goes to Jesse and says, bring me your sons. And then in verse 6, the first one he sees is Eliab. And Eliab comes out, and and it says that, uh, surely, this is the one standing before me. It it says before him in the ESV, but the NIV, it says the one standing there. What that means is that Samuel saw Eliab standing there. And he had this physical statue that were the, the measurements. You, ha- you had to be like this to be the king of a powerful nation. And he goes, surely this is it. And what happens is one by one, these, these, uh, these different sons are brought before them. And just enter with me allegorically for a minute. This, this is what it was like. Samuel sees these sons and Eliab is like the GQ model. He's just got on the fine suit, rock-hard abs, perfect haircut, chiseled chin, and he says, surely this is the right one, and God says, no. So then Abinadab comes through, and Abinadab is the brilliant poet. He is the scholar. He is uh, the very famous and highly thought of a person in his field, he's brilliant, his intellect is unsurpassed by anyone. You think, surely this is the one, this is the one who would be loved, this is the one who will be followed, this is the one everybody will be after. 
And God says, no. And then thirdly, Shema is brought. This is the, uh, the Bitcoin billionaire. He's got the profile that is so attractive. Who would not want to follow him? Who would not want to be with him? And God says, no. And what we begin to see here, here's what we're being shown, is that Samuel and God both see the same person, see the same thing, but they see it in two different ways. Now, why? Because it says in verse 7, and here's the profound, profound text, it says, because God looks at the heart and man looks at outward appearance. And here, here's what we're learning in this little text here, the idea of external misdirection. Do you know how a, uh, a thief works, how somebody um, steals from you? You know, they, they, they typically don't, like the worst cases are they pull a weapon on you and they just take it from you. But more succinctly and more professionally, what they do is they get your attention over here. They get you staring at this thing over here. They get you uh, looking with some sort of distraction. And while you're paying attention over here, they reach around you and pick your pocket. And you never notice and you never see what's happening to you because you're so caught staring at this thing over here. And what's happening to Samuel here is God is looking at him and saying, all these things that you're caught up in, all of these things that you're staring at, Samuel, you are having your pocket picked. Now, what's the lesson here for marriage? Look, most of us, if not all of us, go into intimacy and think about being one flesh with somebody almost always based on external things. We're drawn to people through external ideas, we believe ex- externally can give us what we long for in intimacy. And God is saying to us right here, even from this text, He's saying, when you and I are caught up in that, when we're distracted by this, you are having your pocket picked. And you are being stolen from. Now, two application implications of this. One, to something that we do and something that we want to happen One, and I have to apply this here for just a minute because of the way it works with oneness and intimacy, is just the idea of pornography. Why pornography is so destructive is because when you participate in pornography and you expose yourself to it, what you're doing is you're training your soul to put the external things over the internal things. And you're training your eyes into a distorted view of reality to where you are always staring at the external things, always caught up in these things, and believing this is ultimate reality in how oneness and intimacy is caught. Um, And and look, this is not just a biblical reality. Um, Of all people, Apple News ran this story a couple months ago from uh, an NBC outlet. Billy Elish, not a Christian, was interviewed, and she just said, I started watching pornography when I was 11 years old. She said, here's what it's done to me. It has dis- this is her quote, it has destroyed my brain. It made me begin to think that I had to believe and see the world like a boy in order to have intimacy. It has turned it upside down for me. And she goes, and I hate it. Look, one of the ways, one of the reasons the church would plead with you 
to flee, to run, to talk to somebody about pornography is because you are literally staring up at something and have your soul picked to the point where you can go, reality is no longer reality for you. But that's not just what's happening to us. There's, there's something that we want. Look, from the normal part of a marriage, like we, we want intimacy, want oneness. We want a great relationship. But the ways that we go about it will never give it to us because we're just staring off at something, hoping that will give us oneness, and it never will. Ed Welch, uh, a great counselor, has an article says, uh, called, I Do. And here's what he says. He says, I thought I was saying when I got married, I am really attracted to you. In fact, I am attracted to you more than anyone else I've ever met. And I'm going to close the door to being attracted to the other people. He says, that I thought was impressively mature. My bride hit the jackpot. The problem, of course, began when she disappointed me. And in a moment, I was shocked by how her attractiveness made no difference. She still looked the same way and had the same fine attributes, but I was no longer attracted. Attraction is fun. And in Western systems of courtship and marriage, it is the way couples get started. But attraction is about me. It's about how someone makes me feel. It gets people together, but it is powerless to keep them together. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, you and I, we're so prone to have our pocket picked. And you want to know why? It's because attraction, these distractions that we look into, they're all about us about what we can get and what we can give. And when you get into marriage, here's what you discover. It's not about me. It's about me dying for you and giving to you and laying my life down for you. And if you go into it with a trained soul that you're here for me and you're here to make me feel better, you're here to give me these things, you will be staring up at something, hoping to achieve a vibrant life in relationship with somebody, and all the while your dreams are being stolen from you out of your back pocket and you have no idea. And what you have to have, and what I'm trying to give you right now, is a voice for that thief. Where God comes and says, and he looks the way that we go after people, and he looks the way that we go after intimacy and oneness, and he says, you're staring at the external things, and all I care about is the heart. And God is saying, that is ultimate reality, and that is where intimacy and oneness is found. Do you have that? Do you have a voice in your life that can regularly wake you up to what is stealing your soul and stealing your opportunities for intimacy? Do you have it at a friend? Do you regularly hear God's Word talk to you this way? Do you have something in your life that can say this to you? You have to have a voice for the thief. Secondly, though, to get to oneness and achieve it, you have to have language for the heart. Look, intimacy, the, the, the climax of intimacy, the high point would be sex. But the way that you have to think about sex in marriage is that it's not an external expression of an external reality, but it's an external expression of an internal reality. And what that means 
is that when true oneness and intimacy is achieved, especially in the act of sex in a marriage, what you're doing is you're achieving oneness by externally expressing the way that you have met somebody's internal needs. So that I think what the Bible teaches about sexual attraction is that we are most drawn to somebody, not when they appear some way, but when they meet us a particular way. And this is where I think Paul is going in his simple command that we read this morning when he says, husbands, love your, excuse me, husbands, love your wives and wives, respect your husbands. That I think what Paul would say is that husbands, when you love a wife, you are meeting a deep need of her that when it's met, will draw her to you in a way that she's not been drawn to anybody else and vice versa for the man. That when he is respected, she is meeting the deepest need of his soul so that when it's met, he's drawn to give himself to her in a way he's never given himself to anybody else. Now, why the two commands this way? Well, I don't have tons of time to go into this. But if you go back and you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, when it talks about the beginning of marriage, something profound happens that when Adam and Eve sin and they, God comes and pronounces curses on them, he does two different curses. He says, Adam, here's a curse for you, and it has to do with work. And then he says, Eve, here's a curse for you, and it has to do with her relationships. So that there's something broken about men and women that's different in that we're both broken, but our fallenness takes on two different stories. And I think what Paul is getting at when he says there's two ways of going about loving each other and being in a marriage. He's saying the way that you go into a woman with love and the way you go into a man with respect is going to heal those curses and bringing them back into Eden this way. And when you begin to do that, that's when you're getting intimate and beginning to be one. Let me show you what this means. A friend of mine, uh, Les Newsom, he's a minister uh, in Mississippi, gave me this book several years ago uh, by, call, by a guy named William Harley. It's called His Needs and Her Needs. And what he did is he gave a survey of uh, the greatest intimate needs that men and women need. Listen to these. See if they resonate at all. He said, women intimately and sexually value these things, five of them. One, being treated romantically. That is, women want to be pursued. They want to be shown an effort. I remember when Becky and I were dating, and I would ask her out, and we would go on a date, and we would, I would pick her up, and uh, she'd be like, what are we doing? And I'd be like, I don't know. What do you want to do? And I thought, you know, I'm being so humble. I'm like opening the opportunity, you know, just... I want to live life on your terms, and she would be exasperated by me, so frustrated, and I, I, I just didn't get it. I was like, I thought I'm being like the selfless person, like, like whatever you want to do, and she's like, think for me, care, show a little bit of effort, spend five minutes coming up with an idea, and what she was basically saying is, pursue me, make an effort for me, make me the prize. Secondly, it says women value conversation. As women feel loved when they can share the details of their life. Any, any of you who have been married learn this, that when your wife 
wants to talk to you. She doesn't want her problems solved, and she's not asking for answers. Becky has taught me that at the end of the day, she just wants to tell, tell me everything. She wants to tell me who she talked to. She wants to tell me how it went. She wants to process it. And when she asks me my day, I'm like, it was good. That's about it. I saw so-and-so. It was not that big of a deal. But she wants, to get, she wants me to talk and get it out. And I, it's taken me a long time to realize that when she shares details of her life, she's sharing her soul. And she wants me to take and hold her soul and to listen to it and to say, I value this and I want to hear it. Thirdly, he says, women value honesty and openness. That is, a woman wants to be able to say that she knows her man better than anyone else. I remember, um, this was like eight or nine, yeah, eight or nine years ago, um, I was just having a vocational crisis, and I sent an email to like uh, 10 or 11 of my peers who were all in ministry, and I was like, I don't know what I'm gifted for, I don't know what I should be doing, tell me about me. And uh, Becky was looking through my email, and she found that and was just furious. And I, I was like totally confused. I was like, why, why, why are you mad about this? Uh, and she was like, you didn't ask me about this. And I was like, well, you're not in ministry. You know, like, I would think that you wouldn't care. And she was like, tell me before you tell the other big people in your life the biggest things of your life that it felt like anybody knowing something about me that's valuable before her was a huge violation. What she was saying is, I want to know that before anybody else. And when you share that with me, I feel loved. Fourth, he says, women value safety and security. Why do we have the stereotype of women love money? You know, you, you just you see it all the time in Southern California. A man, he looks one way, then you look at this woman and you're like, these two don't add up. He must be rich. And we're very superficial with that, and we're easy to judge, but I think we have to be careful here because there's something about a woman where I don't just think that they're going after materialism. What Harley says is a woman longs for tomorrow to be confirmed. That you don't have to go through life wondering what tomorrow will bring. That if I fall, something will catch me. And it's not just a longing for materialism. It's not just a, a longing for money and power. What it is is saying that there is someone out there, there is something out there that will make me safe and secure in this unsafe and this insecure world. And that, that doesn't mean that we love women by only giving them money or only providing for them, but what it means is that a woman feels loved when she's freed up and secure and safe in a way that she can excel in all the things that she wants to excel in. And when a man does everything he can to free her up to do that, she feels loved. Fifth, he says, women long for commitment. 
That is, a woman wants to know that she is, and the children are more important than any job and any hobby and anything that he spends his time doing. I, I've noticed this all the time in, in um, recent years in our marriage. Be- Becky will come to me and say, hey, I'm, I've got this PTA meeting tonight, or I've got this foundation meeting, or I'm volunteering with this thing, and I'll just go, great, sounds incredible. Like, I don't know how you do all this. This is amazing. Good for you. And I'll say at times, you know, hey, um, I've got a meeting tonight with the leaders of the church, and it almost is always met with like, oh, and I'll be like, I'm not going to a bar to get drunk. Like, you know, I'm, I'm going to do these valuable, important things, but it's almost always met sometimes with an immediate threat. And what she's saying is she's just deeply asking me, am I more important than this job? Am I more valuable than all of these things that you're giving yourself to? And when I demonstrate and communicate that she absolutely is, she feels loved. And Harley's sort of saying, those are the needs of a woman. And I think what Paul would say is, when you go after those needs, men, that's what it means. Husbands, love your wives. And when you do that, she will want to be one with you. Now flip it. Here's what he says, men value. One, physical affection. Now jokes abound, but when men crave physical affection, it's not just hormones. Ladies, what he's saying is is that when, when you touch a man, when you kiss him, and you grab his arm, you're not just doing something physically. You're, you're touching his soul and making him feel wanted and making him feel special and making him feel unique. Secondly, men value friendship. You know, why is it you, you go to a Dodgers game and you see, you know, both of the men and the woman both wearing Dodgers jerseys? Or you go on a hike and you see a man and woman hiking together. And whenever you notice that, you just think those people look like they're in love. It's that when a woman joins a man's hobby, here's what's happened. It's like the two things the man loves more than anything in the world are being meshed together. His two greatest things, the person he most wants to be with and the thing he most wants to do. And when a woman joins in what a man wants to do, he doesn't want to be doing anything else. It's like ultimate contentment is almost achieved. Like this is where I want to be, and this is what I want to be doing. Thirdly, he says men value trust. When a man is not trusted, it's not just an attack in the moment. It's like an attack on his character. I know you experienced this. Becky and I will be in the car driving. We've been married 20 years. And we'll be going down the road, and there's a truck four lanes over a mile down the road, and she's still sticking her legs up, screaming, you know, just, ah, be careful. And even though it's a valid thing for us to not run into a Mack truck, you know, I, I, I react poorly every time. 
And you, you want to know why? It's not because I'm insecure. I am. But it's because it, what it feels like to a man is you're saying, the children and me don't matter. And I, it, to a man, you're like, you matter more than anything else. I would never put you at risk. Please believe that. And it's a silly example. But when a man is trusted, it feels like his character is valued. It feels like his purpose is valued. It feels like his priority is intact. And when that's acknowledged, it's hard to describe what a boost of self-esteem that is. Fourth, he says men value support. As he, he, he says, when the man goes out into the world, it's difficult to exaggerate how much of an ego battle it is all day, every day. That you basically go off to work and just get your emotional ego destroyed all day, every day. You question it internally. You have it questioned externally. You battle all of these things. But if you can come to a home where there is no battle like that, you will come home every time. You, you want to know why men go to a bar or go to a cigar club or go to the golf course after work and stay there for long hours or why they overwork? Often he says it's not just because they really have to do those things or want to do those things. It's because it's less of a war than home. He says but if home is a safe support system where you come home and it's like you can take a deep breath and you know, well, at least I don't have to fight here. He, he says he will come home every time. Fifth, he says men love admiration. Think about this. What are the stereotypical affairs in our culture? You know, it's a lawyer and who? His secretary. It's a surgeon, and who? The nurse who sits there and watches it. It's, it's, it's the person who sees the man do the most successful thing in his careers. It's a person who sees the man and admires him in the place where he's most vulnerable and longing to be admired. What a man longs for, he says, is for someone to look at him and say, you're the man. There's no one like you. You're the best. And all of these things I think Harley is putting together, it's just a man longs for respect. So that inner Paul's language to wives, wives, respect your husbands. Look, it, it, it's not this... We'll get back to 1920s or 1930s and let's visit the old traditional culture. It's saying this is where he's insecure. This is where he's fallen. This is where he's hurting in the world. If you meet those needs, he will want to give himself to you in a way he's never given himself to anybody else. And I, I think what all of that is, is just telling us is that what oneness and intimacy, it's not given through the body. It's achieved in the heart and expressed in the body. And that when you begin to do that, 
When you begin to act that way for somebody else and you begin to think about intimacy that way, you are seeing one another and you're seeing the world the way that God sees it. You are seeing the heart. And that's the language for oneness. Husbands, love your wife. Wives, respect your husbands. You have to have a voice for the thief. That's some language for the heart. But thirdly, lastly, eyes for true beauty. Dostoevsky once said, beauty is the battlefield where God and Satan contend for the hearts of men and women. That is, in our heart is always a battle for what is beautiful and what is persuasive and what is convincing. And one of the ways that you know that God is alive and and at work in your life is he begins to win that battle. And when God begins to win the battle in your heart, and train you to begin to see the world the way that he sees the world, what will happen is his upside-down values of the world begin to become your values in the world. That is, you're beginning to see the world the way that God sees the world, and you know he's at work in your life, and you'll find the oneness that he wants to give you. When you begin to see things backwards and upside-down, here's what I mean. In the text, if you go back and look at this 1 Samuel 16 text, what happens is look, all of these, king, these, these brothers come before Samuel and God says no because all, all of their external appearances. And he says, but I look at the heart. So all seven of them go, and that's a complete number in Hebrew. And Samuel basically says, is there anybody else left? And Jesse says, well, there's the small one. And in the Hebrew, it, it's, it's literally a pun, a little word play that basically says, well, there's the runt. There's the little one who's way out in the fields, the forgotten one. And he says, bring him here. And when he comes, when David is brought before him, Samuel sees him and says, this is the Lord's anointed. And he says, we must anoint this one. Now, here's what's so profound in this text. When Samuel says, we must anoint him, the word for the anoint in the Hebrew is the word meshua which is how we get the word Messiah. In the Greek, you translate that word Christ, which is what Samuel says is when he sees David, he says, we must Christ him, that this is the chosen one. And what he sees is the forgotten, unseen one, the little one, the runt, the one that had no external appearance that seemed like a king. This was the beautiful one. This is the one that God chose. This is the one who had heart and character. And do you know how you will begin to see the world the way that God sees it? And you'll begin to value people and to pursue them and to achieve oneness the way. It's because when you begin to see the world the way that God sees it through the one who came to achieve the world the way that God wants it to be, the forgotten Messiah. In Isaiah 53, Here's what it says about the becoming Messiah. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. That is, when Jesus was dying on the cross, there was nobody who thought, this is the beauty of God. This is the healing of the world. This is true glory. But when Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross in John 12... 
We were in staff meeting, and Eli said that, brought this up a couple weeks ago. He said, you know, when Jesus says in John 12, I will be lifted up, he's talking about his throne. He's talking about his cross. And he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And this is the kind of glory that God is after. That is the glory and the majesty of God, the beauty of God. His throne was a cross. And here's what this means for us in relationships in marriage. The only way to discover beauty, the only way to discover oneness, the only way to discover attraction is through the redemptive, beautiful cross. And that just, that just means it's almost always going to be upside down. It's almost always going to be backwards. It means your initial instincts on what you typically find beautiful, what you're typically attracted to, what you're most succinctly drawn to in this world are almost always wrong. And God has to heal them. The way he'll heal them is with a cross, which means it's almost always through the hard things that don't, don't seem attractive at first, that don't seem beautiful, that don't seem the right way. Do you know how you've entered that in a marriage and you've got that in your marriage? I'll give you a couple applications. Here's how you're beginning to see oneness and intimacy through the cross. A, you will value character over physical appearance. Any of you who have been married for a long time would testify to this. Over time, somebody's character becomes infinitely the thing that draws you into them. If you're thinking about marriage or open to marriage, hear this now. Character lasts. Physical appearances never do. Your physical appearance, in fact, typically will grow this way, but your character can grow this way. And when you begin to value that, you're beginning to see the world the way that God does. B, you value how someone can care for you over what kind of life they can give you. If somebody is pursuing you and pushing you to become the best version of you, and they're laying their life down, and they're giving you sometimes not just what you want, but what you need. And you value that over the things that possibly are out there in the world that someone can give you. You're A, beginning to see the world that God gives you, and B, you're on your way to intimacy. Third and last, you're beginning to see God's world the way He wants you to see it when you begin to give someone what they need over what you would need. Look, when Paul says, husbands, love your wives, wives, respect your husbands, ladies, you know what men are typically prone to give you? Respect. It's so easy to respect my wife. She's literally the greatest. But that's what I want. And it's not what she craves. And for women, it's so easy to love a husband. But that's what you want. And what he craves is respect. And what that means is you have to get outside of yourself and think not just what do I want or what would I prefer here, but what does this person need? And when you begin to do that, you're thinking less of yourself and you're getting onto someone else's terms and thinking about what it means 
for that person to be loved. And you know who does that? God does to you. And when you begin to do that, you're seeing the world the way that he begins to see it. Kurt Kloniger is an actor, he's a believer, who he and his wife sadly lost a child when he was eight years old. A tragedy. And as they were slowly beginning to move through that and work through that several years later in, in banking on the hope of heaven, she developed early, early set Alzheimer's and began to be very ill. And one time they were in, in Ireland for his work. And as they were driving down the road, she just turned to him and freaked out and said, I don't know who you are. And she'd forgotten him. And he just said, how, how am I supposed to, to grow old with this person who doesn't even know who I am? So he was speaking somewhere. It was like to a group of Christians in Ireland. And uh, talking to them about his work and talking to them about things in his life. And he just started to get very vulnerable about his marriage and talk about his wife's Alzheimer's and this thing that she had just shared with him. And so the people come around him. And they just decided to pray for him. And he said they were praying for them. And this little Irish lady put his hands on her. He put her hands on him. And she just prayed, Lord, you know what it's like to have a forgetful bride. To have a bride who has no idea who they're married to. And to lose touch with you. And yet you still choose lay your life down for us. You chill, choose to pursue us. And Kurt said, in a moment, it just fell to him. And he thought, I can grow old with this woman. This story, the gospel, seeing my marriage through this, and what Jesus has given me and who he is to me, this is the power. This is the way to see my marriage. This is the way that I can lay my life down and love this woman. Do you know that? Do you have eyes for that kind of beauty? Look, man in the culture looks at the external appearance, but God looks at the heart. See it the way he sees it. Let me pray. Father, all this stuff, this counseling, these texts, Lord, be with our marriages. We are such a forgetful bride. And yet we do want to be one. We're all married to people who don't know how to be married. We pray for future marriages and marriages in here, Lord, that we would see the gospel, see things your way. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.